0: Hey, everybody, it's time for the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Well, you know, we like some big thinkers on this show. And if I got one for you today, Jonathan Keats, who goes by the title Experimental Philosopher. This is the guy who attempted to genetically engineer God. Indeed. He has patented his own mind.
1: It was actually a copyright. Okay, copyrighted, excuse me. Sold his thoughts. I must have made at least five, ten dollars that evening. He has made porno for plants, honeybees pollinating
0: flowers, and designed a city built on spinning platters, exploiting
1: Einsteinian relativity to speed some things way up and slow others way down. So for instance you would be able to have your crops grow very quickly while you would live a nice long life. Jonathan has
0: decomposed music, adding random notes to Bach to match the average disorder of the universe, and he has tapped the hidden dimensions of space, to turn some slick real estate deals.
1: I sold around 71 lots in the extra dimensions of space within the San Francisco Bay Area. And
0: he is far from done. His latest scheme is something he calls Microbial Associates, a firm
1: that trains bacteria for executive positions in corporations. Simply to bring them into the cultural mindset that they could be hired. What I hope ultimately will happen, though, is that We will increasingly defer to them in terms of their managerial expertise
0: and by now you listeners are probably asking the same question that i asked jonathan when we first sat down for this interview
1: are you serious sir it seems to me that indeed i am very serious serious (laughs) first of all about trying to as rigorously as possible undertake each one of these projects How best to work with bacteria to bring them into the corporate world? How best to make pornography for plants that really will titillate them? But at the same time, I'm also serious at a sort of a meta level. My bigger project is that of a frustrated philosopher, someone who studied philosophy in school and felt that it was just far too insular in terms of who was talking to whom and about what. I wanted to bring it out into the world. So each one of these projects, in a sense, is a thought experiment that invites everybody in. And I hope they're also funny.
0: So my laughter during this interview is in no way disrespectful.
1: I would suggest a laugh track if you can't (laughs) manage it on your own.
0: I want to go back in history and find out how you became a guy who does these kinds of things and does them successfully. I mean, you get institutions to play host to these Experiments.
1: I guess it depends on how you define success. Uh, well
0: you're in galleries, museums, there are exhibitions in far-flung places. When you propose to create a church to science, the Judah Magnus
1: Museum in Berkeley, you know, offers you a site to create your church. Yes, it was a beautiful site. It had cathedral windows, and I was able to put the cosmic microwave background radiation in as a sort of alternative to the ordinary stained glass windows. You
0: mean those colorful pictures of the microwave background radiation?
1: That's correct. Uh, The artificial color, of course, standing in for the microwaves that we cannot see. But my point is and was that you haven't
0: just sat alone uh, dreaming up these absurd-sounding projects. You've gotten institutions to buy in. You've pulled them off.
1: And that's essential. You make your living this way. I make my living this way to some small extent, I also write. And that writing process is kind of a parallel way in which I explore the world. Many of those ideas then come into these projects and vice versa.
0: Oh, we haven't mentioned your books yet. As long as we're um, at least dipping into your resume, we should
1: mention those. Yes, I've written a few of them last that I saw and (laughs) have another one due in just a few weeks. Oh,
0: wow. Tell us the names of the ones you have written and the one that's coming out.
1: I've written a couple works of fiction, most recently The Book of the Unknown, which was published by Random House uh, about 2009 or so, and a couple nonfiction books relatively recently with Oxford University Press, one of which is called Virtual Words, Looking at Language and Science, and another one called Forged, Why Fakes are the Great Art of Our Age, which I guess kind of explains itself. What's the one that's coming out? I'm writing a book looking at Buckminster Fuller and his legacy.
0: Or, as a friend of mine called
1: him, Buckminster Buller. Exactly. I'll have to propose it to my editor.
0: <laughs> I saw him talk once in his later years. Did you ever see him?
1: I never did. I, I feel that that was actually an advantage in terms of writing this book because mm. I was completely and totally outside of the whole world of Fuller and his acolytes. I only once came close as a child... Uh, There was a conference where they were building one of the uh, geodesic domes up in Tahoe. And I remember seeing it and hearing that Fuller was speaking. And happily, I never met him, never heard him. And so I could come at this totally fresh, uh, a Mm. new generation looking back at these ideas with total irreverence and bringing them into the present and into the future.
0: Well, I can tell you this. I mean, he was brought, I think, to a commencement, it was like a commencement address or something. He was quite elderly. They shuffled him on stage, and they just sort of pressed the on button. And he went off with a whole series of ideas, just one after another. And when his time was up, they had to sort of bring the hook out. He was still talking as they ushered him off stage.
1: And he would have been talking for another seven hours <laughs> if they didn't have a hook. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Um, But I want to know more about your history. How did you become a guy who does all this? Um, You said you studied philosophy.
1: I studied philosophy in school and found that it was nothing like what I imagined it would be as a child, obtusely thinking that he wanted to be a philosopher. I was trained in the analytic tradition, where Uh it was a very sort of rigid, logic-driven linguistically based system of asking some questions that were very interesting for the very few people specialized enough to be asking them, but that were utterly and completely beside the point. So I felt more and more as time went on that there was some training I was getting in terms of how to construct an argument and the way in which a thought experiment might work that might potentially be smuggled out of the academy and that I might make use of in that childish way that I had once thought of philosophy to make my own way in the world, doing philosophy outside of academia and doing it by making thought experiments, real experiments that would play out in public and that we would see as a public, all of us together, exactly what they meant.
0: And tell us what came next. How long before you became what you're now known as a conceptual artist, experimental philosopher?
1: I'm not sure really what my proper job title is. Conceptual artist tends to be rather off-putting in the same way that analytic philosopher is. Uh, It tends to have this sort of rigidity to it. And I I love Solowit and some of the other classic conceptual artists, but... I also don't think that what I'm doing is really so much what they were doing. So I've taken experimental philosopher as a Mm. job title because no Mm. one knows what it is. Mm. It was something that existed long ago, and nobody answers to this title anymore. So therefore, it gives me a lot of leeway.
0: Although we should say that there are people now doing something that they call experimental philosophy.
1: I've noticed, and it doesn't look it's anything like what yes. I'm doing, it's it turns very out. It's different,
0: yes. It's almost like cognitive science. I mean, they'll ask questions about perception. Uh, yes, and it, what it's people cognitive is, psychology. Cognitive psychology, yes. Um, but nonetheless, there are people calling themselves experimental philosophers who aren't doing what you are doing. So. And
1: therefore, I think I need a new job title. <laughs> Any suggestions, please uh, feel free.
0: Well, the artist part comes in in the sense that the um, kinds of organizations and institutions— that sponsor what you do tend to be museums and galleries right art seems to be the friendliest home for this stuff i mean the art world
1: i think that that's true i i think that what has happened over the past century or even longer than that is on the one hand the sciences have become more and more specialized in terms of what any given biologist or physicist does and as a result it's very difficult for them to really work or think expansively. And this is also true of disciplines such as philosophy, which have followed a similar course. On the other hand, the arts have gone from an academy system where you had a long training as a painter or a sculptor, and that's what you became, to a crisis with Marcel Duchamp, where suddenly, because he submitted a urinal in an exhibition calling it a sculpture, anything and everything could be art. And as a result, the art world hasn't really known what it was doing (laughs) ever since then. And that is an incredible opportunity. I think that there's a lot of bad art that has come out of that because there's been a tendency to take the Duchampian turn and turn it again and again and make art about art about art, etc. But on the other hand, it has allowed for an incredible amount of freedom. And I think that the art world is really the only place that is so totally in a state of identity crisis that you can do anything. We could
0: probably spend the next hour talking about the art world alone. I get
1: a lot of people really angry. Well,
0: I'd be really curious because I used to follow it and I gave up on it. Uh, partly because I saw this for me, uh, here, I'll get in trouble. You can stay <laughs> safe. For me, almost toxic combination of market dynamics where, you know, many people were interested simply because they could make a lot of money on the collecting
1: side. And also on the arts production side. Yes, money definitely makes the art world go round.
0: Money makes the art world go round, and you need a principle for assigning value to things. And that that uh, gap was filled by criticism in many ways, in which critics became the facilitators. I had an experience. I never told this story on radio, but I'll tell you. Because I was so serious about art that I would go into galleries and I would take notes and write things, you know. And this is like when in my early 20s. I went into a gallery in Soho and started doing this, and the artist approached me, and she said, what are you writing about my work? And I told her, and she thought it was so good that she wanted to hook me up with Art Forum magazine, get it published, because she didn't say this, but it was clear. You need a conceptual kind of manifesto to really break through, and I was providing that for her.
1: I think that that is all too true, but where it really gets to be toxic is that that manifesto then becomes the basis for more work that the art school now teaches because there there's no formal (laughs) training that answers to art as a result what do you teach how do you fill the hours well you teach theory and therefore you teach young artists to illustrate that theory with work that then leads to more theory and so on so Yes, there's, I think, the great danger of an intellectual bankruptcy. At the same time, there's a great danger of total economic uh, plunder. I mean, happily, my work is more or less worthless. So I avoid (laughs) that problem. And happily, I never went to art school. And so I somehow seem to have escaped that issue as well. And so I end up in this sort of strange space where galleries and museums every now and then want to bring in something that is maybe not entirely according to what a given trend in the art world is right now. And I'm so totally out of any sort of trend that I guess I can provide that.
0: Well, one thing you do, uh, I know enough about your work to say this with some confidence is you take the principles, the ideas, very seriously. So when you do something about general relativity, you don't just toss off some fatuous, dilettantish statement. You study it, and you make sure you understand the actual principles involved so that your phantasmagorical proposal for a city at which people and things spin at different rates in order to you know, harness time dilation effects By the way, we we talked about um, time dilation on this show just a week or so ago with Brian Green, so people can refer to that interview (laughs) (laughs) to learn
1: more. (laughs) Well-timed. Very
0: well-timed. But I noticed that you actually care enough about the science that though you know this thing would be utterly impractical, there'd be no way to get people spinning at near light speeds, you know, and so
1: on. Well, it'd be highly practical. It's just a question (laughs) of how possible it is given alloys and energy and Factors of the sort. So I leave totally open whether this could be implemented. And everything that I have in the way of a proposal is, I think, all highly plausible as far as it goes. But then you start getting into the engineering and various issues come up.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you run these things, uh, for instance, in this case, past physicists, like for a little bit of a reality check?
1: I have done so in the past. I have, for instance, one of my projects where I was applying string theory to real estate development. I was consulting at the time with a few people, including a local, uh, Saul Perl- Perlmutter. He who, won the
0: uh, the Nobel for dark energy. Yes,
1: he just won the Nobel uh, a couple of years ago, I think. and For the discovery of dark energy. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, it seems that Usually, I get most things more or less right, and I (laughs) attribute a lot of that to luck, though I do try to work as hard as I can as well to uh, work things out. Well, I
0: appreciate it Um, when people talk about science. I really want them to be accurate. I don't want them to be glib. And unfortunately, there is, as we know, a tendency in pop culture and sometimes in art to grab something like the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle or um, quantum superposition or entanglement and not know what the hell they're talking about and make it sound like something it isn't. So you like to have your feet on the ground when it comes
1: to this stuff. Right. I think that there's a tendency, the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle is probably the best case or worst case of this, of using science as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. and. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as it is explicitly that.
0: Sure. As long as you say Heisenberg didn't actually say what I'm about to say.
1: (laughs) Right. And you can go somewhere with that, but that isn't really where I want to go. Where I want to go is into the more systematic questions about how we understand knowledge that we have accumulated about the world, the systems that we use to govern the world in which we live, and how we come to a deeper understanding of ourselves with respect to the world. And all of those questions seem to come out of a few really fertile areas right now, one of which is within the sciences, where so many ideas are coming out of the sciences and manifesting either in popular science or more so still in technology, that I think that we really do need to be more attentive to the assumptions that are going into that common knowledge and going into that culture, that scientific culture in which we live, that technologically mediated culture in which we operate.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about um, that idea, the, the way we come to know the world and, and the way that things like science you know, serve that purpose for us. And I, I guess I, I would like to go back to one of your projects, the Atheon. This is the temple to science. Atheon as an atheism, as in no god, but on as in building, temple, place, space. There was a
1: pantheon, and so I felt that it was only appropriate that there be an atheon <laughs> yeah, as its with no alternative.
0: Gods. But in, in the place of gods was science. What What is your thinking about that? I mean, I, there is this argument right now. On one side, you have people like Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam uh, Harris— these are the most famous proponents. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson, one. yeah. He's gotten involved lately. Uh, who are saying that science is all we need. You know, it's far better than religion ever was. Religion is this awful mass of superstition and uh, absurd dogma. And, you know, people who are religious, some of them have no problem with science, by the way. Others are rejecting things like evolution and, and climate change.
1: And <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. Yes. And it gets into that. Yeah, yeah. But what do you think, though? I'm interested in how we can reach some stage at which it is not an either or proposition and where we can start to say that there are certain questions that are appropriate for science and certain questions that are not that are potentially questions that, that might be addressed through one or another religious methodology. And I am by no means religious myself. I consider myself not to be an atheist, but to be agnostic. It seems to me the most interesting way to look at the world in the first place, and also it seems to me to be uh, the most reasonable. So what I want to do in many cases, I think, is to see how far you can take science in terms of what science can address legitimately within what tools science has to offer, and to start to see what happens when you get past those limits and how things start to get very strange. And that sort of quality of strangeness, that quality of things not being quite right, I think gives a visceral sense of other realms that exist and that matter that may not be scientific in nature.
0: So so tell me about that edge where things get strange, where, am I right, That where you feel like science is out of its depth or out of its territory uh, and something else must enter?
1: Well, one of the projects that I undertook several years ago was in real estate. The real estate market was heating up the first time around. And so I wanted to get into real estate and had no means of buying anything that was being sold. But I realized that string theory was becoming more and more uh, prevalent and gaining more and more credibility, and that potentially it could also gain legitimacy within the world of real estate if I were to use the legal framework of air rights, the ability to buy rights in the third dimension of space, to instead purchase rights to develop in the extra dimensions of space that were required by string theory. So I then could go out to people who own properties and say, I will pay you $5 or $10. For those rights you 're not using any of those dimensions, and then I can subdivide, so I opened a real estate office and I sold around seventy one lots in the extra dimensions of space within the San Francisco Bay area. <laughs> did quite well though because it was highly speculative, I priced everything at one millionth the zillow price for the base property
0: well let's 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 be clear here. the extra dimensions posited by string theory are are tiny they're they're spatially very small,
1: yes they're ten to the negative thirty <laughs> fifth meters. By many calculations, and that, of course, makes them somewhat impractical in terms of being able to get there. First of all, that was why they were cheap, and secondly, that is why nobody else was doing what I was doing. But one of my arguments was that most people never get to their vacation properties anyway, so it would be sort of an equivalent situation here.
0: Or or make it a timeshare where people are used to being ripped off anyway. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: So I, I think that this is a case in which string theory, in order to be validated, might require energy levels that are beyond those that could ever be harnessed on Earth. Getting a particle uh, a particle energy level yeah. high enough to be able to probe at Planck length, at 10 to the negative 35th meters, it might be beyond what is experimentally possible.
0: Well I think it was Ed Witten, one of the leading thinkers of string theory, who said, uh you'd need a particle accelerator about uh the uh about the same length as the diameter of our uh, solar system. Right.
1: And and that was <laughs> partly I think what was motivating this project was in addition to making a killing in the real estate market, I was interested in seeing to what degree we are willing to take this theory that is at the end point of this incredible process of observation and also of harnessing the world around us, whether we are willing to, at that point where there may not be a follow-up, to buy into it literally. Mm. And on the other hand, I wanted to use this science to look at real estate, this very strange thing that we do, buying and selling the land that has always been there and will be there long after we're gone.
0: What about, uh, again, let's, let's not leave that question, uh, so many people are concerned with these days, uh, about the interface or the contest between science and religion. I'm interested in what you learned mm. or what you feel or think about this, especially as a result of your Atheon project.
1: One of the more interesting aspects of the Atheon project for me was to not so much look at what science Attempts to do, or the questions that science attempts to address that are not necessarily scientific, but rather, what happens when you try to take science as your full experience of life. Mm -hmm. In particular, looking at this proposition, which Neil deGrasse Tyson is really a very good example of this. of people in the sciences who say that they get a truly religious or a truly spiritual sense of life, a buzz from the science. And so what I wanted to do in that project was to create this temple where that would be what the temple was attempting to achieve in order to then ask whether when you start to get that buzz – whether it still really is science that you're talking Mm, about.
0: That is a really good question. I interview a lot of scientists. I think the majority of them, uh, or at least certainly many of them, do say or would say that, yes, learning these things about the formation of the universe or the elemental laws that govern the universe or the way life has developed on Earth, to learn these things is to experience uh, wonder, dazzlement, Awe, majesty—a lot of the emotions uh, that people associate with the experience of the divine, right? But is it—is that scientific, or are they leaping beyond science un- unknowingly when they when they experience those things?
1: One thing that really interested me was thinking about the classic double slit experiment, where you end up with an interference pattern as a result of passing light through two slits in a piece of paper because light travels in a wave. And if you send only one photon at a time, mm-hmm. one particle of light at a time at that double slit, you end up with that in- interference pattern, which is to say that there's some way in which each of those photons is somehow interfering with itself or is passing through both slits in some sense. Mm-hmm. This is definitely in the same realm as transubstantiation or anything else <laughs> in terms of just how utterly, completely mind-blowing it is. The question that I have, though, is whether that mind-blowing quality is in any way scientific or scientifically productive. If the scientific aspect of it really is not one of a state of wonder that you're achieving but rather a state of greater confidence in some mathematical formulae, then you really haven't gone very far in terms of gaining spirituality through science. And then you have to ask whether, if science cannot provide that in a way that is scientific, whether in fact we need it through some other means.
0: Well, when a scientist, let's just use Neil deGrasse Tyson, though I think he speaks for many, says, look, my understanding of the cosmos gives me a feeling of joy, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of knowing, a feeling of meaning. Would you say, Jonathan, that that when a religious believer says precisely the same thing about their faith in God, that they're equivalent?
1: I think that the first issue to take up is that when a scientist says that, I don't know that that scientist is really being very rigorous in terms of thinking about what science is and what science can do. They've moved beyond science when they get into that emotional resonance. But not only that, they've moved science beyond science (laughs) when they do so into the realm of hubris because that is the point at which science becomes infallible. And the whole strength of science is its fallibility, is the fact that it is this process of approximation. That process of approximation doesn't seem in any way to correlate with any of the qualities of understanding or of sense of purpose that religion claims to provide. And I'm not speaking for or against religion here. I don't know that religion can do that legitimately either. And certainly the literalist dogma of making a God that is potentially a being that can be prodded and experimented on, as I myself have attempted to do, (laughs) I don't think that that really is the realm of religion where religion is working religiously.
0: That part of uh, religion... Or science or, you know, some other, let's say, system of explanation that gives us comfort. The comfort that we know, that we're not lost, that we're not completely at sea. Even if a hundred years hence, everything we thought we knew is proved wrong, Mm -hmm. it still gave us comfort, right? Even
1: our illusions give us comfort. I think that that's true, but I think that the comfort that we get by cheating ourselves in terms of what we are actually learning experimentally is sort of equivalent in some ways to uh, the sort of cheating that comes from personal fulfillment through the self-help movement. I think that there's a price to pay if you cheat science that much. And that price is higher if you are engaged in the sciences, in practicing the sciences, because if that becomes institutionally a part of what the sciences do, then the sciences are lost in terms of their enormous strengths to explore the world. I see. And also lost in terms of the technological benefits that come from doing science rigorously.
0: So so if I've got you right, you're saying basically that Those folks who would say science supplies me with a firm foundation of certainty that makes me feel good are missing the point of science, which is about uncertainty and the provisional nature of
1: knowledge. And that when a scientist starts to feel that level of comfort and therefore confidence Mm. in what work that scientist is doing, that is not really acting scientifically in terms of that scientific question and is not really pushing that question to the degree that science requires that it be pushed. Mm. You
0: mentioned that you had experimented with or prodded God.
1: I was actually trying to determine where on the phylogenetic tree amongst all the various species where you might put God. The tree of life. On the tree of life. And So since I couldn't obtain any DNA for God, I had to genetically engineer God in a laboratory. And I used that process of genetic engineering to look into several different hypotheses, look at whether God was more closely related phylogenetically to cyanobacteria, the earliest species still extant, or more closely related to us. And I used fruit flies as a surrogate because they're more or less the same phylogenetically. So I ran a couple studies and based on those, was able to publish some results that found that God seems to be more closely related to bacteria.
0: In the journal of what did you publish these So I results? founded
1: the International Association for Divine Taxonomy as an organization to oversee this research. And the first publication of the association was the publication of my results. There simply were no journals, nor were there any associations that were dealing with these sorts of questions at the time. So I had to start from zero and found my own association, found my own uh, publishing operation, and then publish the results.
0: I'm looking at the slim volume that uh, resulted from this. Annals of
1: the IADT. The and you'll see that there's quite an impressive International uh, association board of, of advisors. <laughs> if you turn the page there, I, as I mentioned earlier, I always try for the utmost rigor and talk to a lot of specialists who might be able to help this sort of research.
0: Yeah, I see a lot of um, PhDs listed here as uh, members of your organization, Board of Advisors, um, and uh, some, yeah, very accomplished guys. But what do they say when you come to them with these ideas? Do they say you're barmy?
1: They might say that when I leave, I think that scientists grew into their work in a way that has taken them from the sort of childish exploration that made them want to be scientists and that they've had to, by and large, sacrifice that in order to do what science does now, what science does very well, which is a sort of research that is very labor-intensive and extremely focused, extremely narrow. So I think that when I go to a scientist saying that I want to genetically engineer God or I want to sell real estate in the extra dimensions of space, that that child that made them want to be a scientist kind of gets excited at the fact that they are not accountable for this, but they can play within this realm that I'm creating, and they can explore those ideas with me and with the public that comes to take part in the thought experiment.
0: And these are busy people, so I'm just trying to figure out how you manage to, you know, enlist them uh, with all the claims on their time in something that some people might say is some goofball hoax, you know, or stunt.
1: I tend to find the appropriate scientists through scientists who I already know. Uh Uh-huh. And so that helps in most cases. So you
0: have a letter of introduction.
1: Right. But that isn't always the case. One of the scientists who made the God project possible was John Cobley at university of San Francisco. And he works in cyanobacteria. And I just basically kind of cold called him saying that I wanted to do a project as an artist with cyanobacteria and every scientist, every biologist loves his or her organism of Mm -hmm. choice. The fruit fly people love fruit flies. The cyanobacteria people love cyanobacteria. And when you tell them that you're interested in cyanobacteria, They're interested enough to make 10 minutes of their day (laughs) and to have you come over. And so then I arrived and I said, I know this is a Jesuit school and all that. And I know that this is kind of unconventional what I want to do, but I'm interested in attempting to genetically engineer God. And, you know, I'm in the room with him, so he can't hang up on me. (laughs) And when possible, I will bring some materials Um, with me of previous projects to be able to help contextualize what I'm doing. But he was very excited about it. I mean, as usual, as all scientists are, he was very pressed for time, but he was very happy to work with me in terms of preparing dishes of cyanobacteria with finding the right clonal strain and so forth. And, providing some advice that I needed as well in terms of how to undertake the population growth study scientifically.
0: And by the way, how did you end up determining that God is closer to cyanobacteria? And these are, um, well, let's get a little geeky here. These are very primitive bacteria. They're chemosynthetic, right? Uh, They are photosynthetic. Photosynthetic, okay. Uh, And uh, what else can you tell us about them before explaining why God is closer to them than he is to us or she is to us?
1: The cyanobacteria were most likely the first organisms around, as far as those that we still can work with. Right. That were responsible for bringing the atmosphere up to oxygen levels that would support other us, life forms. Yeah. Other life forms in yeah. general. So, since cyanobacteria were the earliest organisms on our planet that, that are we still know around, yeah. that we know of, it seemed to me that when we say that God came first, there would be the least genetic difference between God and cyanobacteria.
0: Well, Jonathan, you said you had certain problems with the job title conceptual artist, and experimental philosopher has problems too. How about mad scientist and
1: blasphemer? Blasphemy seems to me to be one of the most productive things that one can do in life. And I don't just mean... In the religious sense, I mean in every sense, toward the sciences, toward systems of governance and everything else. Being irreverent, I guess, in the broad sense of the term as we use it right now, seems to me to be really the way in which to explore everything and put it all together in all sorts of different ways and see what comes out of it. I think that there's a role of the trickster in some societies, and Mm -hmm. perhaps that is closer to what I do than being an experimental philosopher or conceptual artist or anything else.
0: Well, let's make a quick um, transition from this older project that involved bacteria to the new one that involves bacteria, the Microbial Associates uh, enterprise that you have created. And that makes its uh, first public appearance on October 21st? October 21st. At the Modernism Gallery. Gallery. I love the antiquated sound of that word, modernism.
1: I know, it... (laughs) Seems that we're going to, well, I guess that postmodernism now seems antiquated as well. Yes, so I don't it does. know where we are anymore.
0: <laughs> I've noticed the word modern has come back, which is pretty funny. Mm. Uh, uh, t- high tech companies are using the word modern to describe their products, which I think is, makes me think of like formica or, you know. <laughs> oh,
1: and retrofuturism <laughs> seems to be very much an aesthetic that you find. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of product design and online. Right,
0: so. right, right. Well, tell us about microbial associates.
1: Microbial associates is a company that I am founding that is in the business of bringing bacteria into the corporate marketplace. Bacteria are the most productive organisms on our planet, the most industrious. They really made the world as we know it.
0: As we were just talking about, the cyanobacteria.
1: And so, therefore, they seem to me to be probably the best organisms out there, far better than humans in many ways, at doing what industry does today. It seems to me that if companies, which already are talking about disruptive innovation and achieving that through diversity, were to embrace true diversity, biodiversity, bringing bacteria into their ranks and operating in ways that were bacterial, it seems that maybe they would reach a level of success that has thus far eluded them.
0: Now, you mean something different than the ways we're already exploiting bacterial labor in, say, the pharmaceutical industry, the chemical industry, the yogurt
1: industry. Indeed. The yogurt industry does a very good job, and I'm grateful for it, but I'm not interested in the consumption of bacteria or in using them as miniature factories. What interests me is... The systems that they use to operate successfully in the world, for instance, quorum sensing, a way in which by positive feedback loops of chemical that they will emit in response to various environmental factors, they can work as an organized colony in spite of the fact that there is no pre-existing hierarchy. If you think about a company, you always have the crazy CEO who's being completely overpaid and egomaniacally running the company in the wrong direction and no one really agrees and no one really is following through. In the case of a bacterial colony, for instance, a pathogen that was attempting to attack the immune system, that would be a catastrophe. And the way in which bacteria get around that is this sort of spontaneous system of self-organization. All the bacteria having no prior association necessarily are able through these positive feedback loops to reach a sort of consensus where all of them operate in concert as if they were effectively a single super organism. So what I'm proposing is that a company can eliminate the board of directors and the CEO and all of the sort of ranks that cause all this rancor and that what they can do instead is to use quorum sensing Every employee is a bacterium, whether literally or figuratively, meaning I'm on the one hand proposing that you can outsource, you can have bacteria in a petri dish that are making all of your corporate decisions for you, or you can operate bacterially by eliminating all those hierarchies and having every employee monitoring his or her environment, signaling to employees that are close by in a way that tries to bring them around to persuade them of what you believe the situation to be what you believe the opportunity to be and that they're trying to do so as well and there are ways in which through these positive feedback loops in various parts within the company levels of consensus are being reached organically and dynamically and are able to change as circumstances do because most companies are not very flexible. They're just too big and the hierarchy is too ossified. But if you don't have that hierarchy, then it becomes a sort of spontaneous system where through these constant cycles of monitoring and signaling and being influenced and influencing that you end up with a company that is deeply connected and that will allow for coordinated action that is of the highest level of salience. You're training these bacteria too, right? Indeed. I feel that one of the ways in which we can start to operate bacterially is to work alongside bacteria in a company, which requires some sort of a cultural understanding on both sides. And I think that we would be more comfortable working with bacteria if we felt that they were fully trained in terms of finance, for instance, understanding dynamics of supply and demand, that is to say, or that they understood management in the way that we undertake management. So what I'm doing is I'm using chemotaxis and galvanotaxis and other systems that are systems used by bacteria to sense their environment and to respond to it. And by manipulating those chemical signals and electrical signals, I can, generally speaking, educate a billion or more bacteria at a time in a single flask, all Pyrex. And I am able to then qualify them in a way that they can go to work for your company.
0: Uh, and, uh, by the way, chemotaxis, galvanotaxis, you're talking about the the mechanisms bacteria use to sense and move towards or away from, let's say, for certain chemical signals or electrical signals.
1: Yes, these are the systems that bacteria use to navigate their environment. And just as humans use speech as a way in which to navigate their social environment, bacteria are using these sorts of signals, which then can be used educationally in a sort of classroom setting. Um, what about them, though? What about their rights? What about their interests? For me, it's very important that bacteria be fully supported in return for the support that they can give us. That is why the bacteria that I will be educating, all of which will come from Golden Gate Park, will be available with a contract where if you want to hire them, you'll pay $10 for approximately a billion bacteria for a week-long contract. Half that money will go to Microbial Associates to pay for their education. The other half will go to them by going to Golden Gate Park, being donated to Golden Gate Park. And contractually, you will be required as their employer to return them to Golden Gate Park, specifically to the place where they came from, so that they can then benefit from that $5 worth of improvement to their ecosystem as a result of the work that they have done.
0: You know, there are parts of um, Golden Gate Park that are fairly rich in bacteria. I've stumbled on them myself. Not exactly the parts that people would say are the most pleasant for humans.
1: Well, I think that Stowe Lake is certainly (laughs) beautiful, as long as you aren't drinking it or swimming in it. So people who come
0: to Modernism uh, Gallery, was it on Market Street in San yes. Francisco? Uh, October
1: 21st or beyond? The, the, the launch event will be on October 21st from 5.30 to 8 p.m. And subsequent to that, Modernism will serve as the home of Microbial Associates. There will not be a large installation subsequent to the opening. Oh,
0: I see. I was wondering you know, exactly what people would see if they, if
1: so, they come. So if people come to the launch event, they will see the classrooms as well as some of the organizational charts that we have prepared that will allow you to organize your company microbially. And also there will be approximately 100 billion bacteria present in bottles that will be classified according to their education, where you'll be able to take them away upon signing a contract and put them to work. Do you have a feeling,
0: you know, as these uh, these projects and experiments run their course, that this one was really successful, or this one didn't pan out, or are they all successful in their own way?
1: I think that one way in which I measure the success of a project is the degree to which the project engages audiences in ways I could never have predicted across domains that I would never would have imagined.
0: Do you have some good examples from past work?
1: One example is where people get really upset for reasons that I never would have expected for reasons that maybe I can't even explain fully to this day, so you would think that genetically engineering got would probably be one of the projects that would get most more inflammatory, well, yes yes, <laughs> and it got certainly the intelligent design community they're pretty touchy and they got rather upset, but the project that has caused the most controversy, I think by far, was when I offered a silent ringtone for free. It was four minutes and 33 (laughs) seconds of silence. So it was a, a remix of John Cage's famous 433. But his silence was analog because it was done at a piano. Mine was digitally produced. And also his, because it was at a piano and the piano was big, it was not very portable, whereas mine was something that you could carry on your cell phone. Even more beautifully, I think, is the fact that you can experience phantom silence, that is to say, thinking that someone is calling you and your silent ringtone is ringing, when in fact <laughs> it isn't. It seems that that gets into an even purer state.
0: But you, you did produce an actual uh, audio file that was pure silence? I did. It was a be.
1: rather large file. It was more than a <laughs> megabyte, and that was a challenge, but I got a company called Start Mobile. No longer with us, unfortunately, to distribute it. And we made it free, and people just were infuriated by this. Well why? Well, the tech world, for some reason, just could not stand the fact that there was, as far as they could tell, no point. (laughs) Oh. And of course that challenges the notion that technology always has a point, which is to say that technology is always an improving force in our world. So I think that the thought experiment was successful in that respect. The other people who got very upset were the classical music world, where they felt that I was somehow being demeaning or somehow was not honoring this great work of art, which I believe it to be. Cage is one of my great heroes, and 433 is one of my favorite works of all time. And by the way,
0: John Cage would never have taken offense at this. I cannot imagine that. People who want to protect him like an icon, you know, uh, like this
1: precious thing, are totally missing his own spirit. And that was, I think, a thought experiment that I hadn't thought of at all. (laughs) Yeah. The The thought experiment that concerns the way in which the most interesting people tend to be taken up, especially posthumously, by the least interesting people, or the most imaginative people by the least uh, imaginative people. Uh, and so the way in which the most fertile ideas become the most ossified
0: yes. is very interesting to me. And how the avant-garde becomes the orthodoxy. Right. Yeah. and
1: And that was something that I was not at all thinking about it, but my interest in pursuing this project was completely in the spirit of cage of exploration of silence and what silence means in different contexts and the cell phone this was around two thousand and seven or so. The cell phone and the custom ringtone this was really first of all ringtones were some of the most intrusive mm. cell phones in general some of the most intrusive noises. <laughs> And so how could I kind of redeem it and reverse it? And how could I make silence something that was being brought into our world productively through this device that was the most distracting Mm. device that we had and that we still have today? So it was a genuine attempt to figure out how we could incorporate silence or more broadly, this sort of ability to get out of the noisy world in which we live, noisy in every sense of the word, how we could escape that even while being within it, whether there's a way of making that pause, that that silence, that headspace portable. Mm-hmm. That was a genuine question I had mm. in making the silent ringtone. Mm. And then these other thought experiments evolve from it because people take it, to mean things other than what I intended, which is, which is what I fully meta-intend. That is to say that certainly my intentions are not important as far as the work is concerned. And if a project remains within the realm of what I intended, then it is an utter and complete failure. Mm-hmm. If I persuade people to think about the project in the way that I thought about it, then I'm doing a very bad job of representing it mm. and putting it out in the world. So, to answer your question from earlier, to me the projects that are most successful are those that most surprise me in terms of what they turn out to be and what they turn out to mean. And the reaction that they evoke. And the reaction that they evoke and the reaction that that brings about in me in terms of how I further evolve the project. Mm.
0: We talked earlier about uh, the art world and its strange mixture of agendas and its own sacred cows. One of them is the creator. I mean, you say you don't think your attention should matter. I've heard many artists say that, and I've heard artists say, I shouldn't matter. It's the work. But the truth is, most of us consumers of art approach it with the idea of someone special behind it. And it's that personality or that enchanted being that we're really also worshiping when we admire the work, right? Even if he, she is a construct. That's one thought that just popped into my head.
1: And, well, this is the reason why I decided that art needed a Copernican revolution, equivalent to what the sciences had. That is to say that the sciences went from the earth, from us being at the center of everything, to the sense that we were no one special, nowhere special, nothing special. And that resulted in all science as we know it today, or most science at least, the arts remain Ptolemaic. They really are very much about the artist, and mm-hmm. the art world is very focused on the artist and the artist's intentions. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to foment a Copernican revolution in the arts and mm. did so by attempting to bring the mediocrity principle into the mm-hmm. arts, a mediocrity principle is essentially what I said a moment ago. that is to say that uh, by and large, everything about us in terms of who and what we are is perfectly average. So I sought to make art that was completely mediocre or perfectly average, <laughs> so I made paintings that were the average color of the universe, which turns out to be a certain <laughs> shade of beige and it has been mathematically calculated what that would be and I took the journal where it was published to the paint store where they mix house paints and I said this is the color I want and they mixed that paint for me and I brought a can of paint back and poured it onto canvases as flatly as I could and those were my paintings. I also made sculpture that was the average composition of the universe outside Nitrogen? of... Hydrogen? Exactly. <laughs> oh, really? So outside of dark <laughs> matter and dark energy so th- of the known universe let's say. Yeah. So I made sculptures out of hydrogen gas. <laughs> My music had the entropy of the universe, so I decomposed music. Specifically, I worked with Bach uh, and made it more entropic so that it would have a level of entropy that the universe has right now. More disorder. If you'd like, I can dig up that MP3 file for you. you Oh, yeah, yeah. Play a few notes of it. And you can drive everyone mad.
0: (laughs) We'll do that. Uh, Which reminds me of the other thought that popped into my head, uh, aside from the, the continuing sacralization, uh, sacredness of the creator in art. And by the way, the creator is really important because the creator doesn't just, you know, play to people's idea of human capacities and specialness. Uh, but also the creator is what bestows value. Mm -hmm. So, right. So if you are one of the anointed, the big names, everything you do, you know, like there was, was it an English artist who put crap in a can, you know, in cans? It was
1: an Italian artist. Italian it artists, was, right. Um, <laughs> was artist, right. Piero Manzoni. And people
0: paid top dollar for those cans of crap. Uh, but aside from that, the other thing is this idea that's sort of a pillar of art, has been for quite a while now, that it's real, its real triumph is its ability to shock and upset people, right? And I've always thought of that as pretty quaint. You know, yes, maybe people rioted at the debut of Rite of Spring, maybe... Was it which exhibition was it of the uh, the, the uh, French uh, post impressionists? Well, the Fauves upset the people, and then there was the was the Armory Show in New York in 1913. Wasn't that a big scandal? Uh, but that's yeah. long gone, right? Are we shockable? Are we really shockable? You proved it. I guess we are. A silent ringtone still gets our <laughs> dander up.
1: I think that we are shockable in the most shocking and surprising ways. <laughs> and I have been doing what I do for quite some time now for going on 15 years, and I just never can predict it. What will people respond? And that's a large part of what really keeps it interesting for me.
0: Is there a genuine um, vitriol thrown your way, like threatening emails or angry emails, for instance?
1: In the case of the silent ringtone, there were quite a few very angry responses posted on news groups, posted in the comment section of various publications and so forth. I don't know that I ever got any emails that were death threats for that, but <laughs> it was remarkable how angry people were. Um, I wanted to
0: get back before we end the interview to uh, one of your um, books. You've authored several and you have another one coming out, what, in a couple of years on Buckminster Fuller?
1: Yes, looking at Buckminster Fuller and his legacy.
0: But uh, we'll wait to talk about that one uh, until it's... Uh, in its final form. And let's talk about one that came out a few years ago. uh, The one about
1: forgeries as the great art of our time. I've titled my book forge Why fakes are the great art of our age. And I really believe it. I think that art forgers are the greatest artists of our time, not for the objects that they make, but for the way in which they trick us for the scandal that ensues when they get caught or when their work is found out. Because art is fundamentally in the business of anxiety, provoking our anxieties about ourselves and our society, and has been ever since, for instance, Edvard Munch's painting The Scream. When you look at art, you are looking at work that is attempting to bring us into that state of anxiety. But forgers are really the ones who are doing it far more successfully in terms of how they bamboozle us. That is to say that when they get caught, the systems that validated their work Mm -hmm. come under scrutiny. We have to question the various ways in which we have offloaded our own sense of what is real, for instance, to a museum or another institution. And that brings us into a state of doubt, into a state of self-questioning, which I think is that state of anxiety that is the essence of art. Legitimate art does this behind glass in a museum where everything is very well controlled. Mm. And it's possible to feel that anxiety, but only in a way that is ultimately very safe. The moment that you walk out of the institution, the anxiety goes away. Whereas the fake won't go away because even if we were not personally the ones who were tricked, there's always a sense that we could have been. There's always a sense in which our society was. And therefore, there are ways in which because there really was something that was breached, something that was broken by the forger, that Mm -hmm. we really have to address it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the forger, when exposed as a fraud, uh, takes down a whole lot of experts with him or her as also being a bit fraudulent in their ability to judge whether that is really a Jackson Pollock. Uh, And many of them bet not their bottom dollar, but collectors' bottom dollars on their judgment of what was a legitimate Vermeer or a legitimate Pollock or whatever, and they turned out to be totally wrong. So what does that say? about the authenticity fixation we have.
1: Well, and also the authority structures that we work with and that we have to work with to some extent because we can't scrutinize and question absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. But we do need to think more critically as a society in all respects, not only in terms of what's real and what isn't in in the realm of art, that's really quite trivial. But in terms of how we look at a scientific finding, for instance, or how we look at a policy, a government policy, for example, that we need to scrutinize all of that with a certain level of doubt, with a certain level of skepticism. And I think that the forger inadvertently brings that out in us.
0: You've just given me a great idea. I am going to forge a Jonathan Keats. Please, by all (laughs) means. (laughs) Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Experimental philosopher, conceptual artist, poet of ideas, and, uh, let's say, epistemological engineer, Jonathan Keats. His latest project, Microbial Associates, opens in San Francisco uh, this week on Tuesday, October 21st at Modernism Gallery. You can find out more at modernisminc.com. And you can learn more about this radio show at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week. Uh, And I thought I'd leave you with a little sonic offering here, a portion of Jonathan's silent ringtone inspired by John Cage. Or maybe, just maybe, a clever fake of my own devising. I'll let you be the judge.